On Sunday evenings, we're studying the doctrine of last things. Uh, the $9 word for this is eschatology, which means a study of the last things. And I had a slide last week showing all six topics. It may turn into maybe eight topics as we unpack these things. And keep in mind that these events, the last things that happen in the world, the end of the world, the melting with fervent heat, the return of Jesus to catch us up in the air, the resurrection from the dead, the judgment day, uh, the eternal destiny of the soul, all those things happen, all, they're not exactly simultaneously, but it's all one massive event as, as, the, as the world ends, Jesus returns, then the judgments after that, and so forth. And so we're unpacking these week after week, little by little, even though it's all one basic uh, world-changing, world-ending event that, that occurs. And so tonight, the second part of this is the idea of the last enemy that shall be destroyed. Last week, we looked briefly at this business of the end of the world or the last day, and people have predicted this or tried to predict it over the centuries. And a fellow named Harold Camping back in 2011 had done his math, and he approached it from some of the um, genealogies in Genesis and different things, trying to figure out the age of the earth and the age of when certain things happened. And the mathematics just never add up. It's not within man who walks to direct his steps or to find out some of these mysteries. And so he tried his best to figure out that it was going to be, I think it was May the 21st. I have another slide here on that. It was going to be May the 21st, 2011. And this lady had done some work on that. And there was billboards all over the country. And it was on the news that the end of the world is coming. And then Camping's description was, well, it's really not going to be on May the 21st, 2011. It's going to start then, but it'll last several months. And then it'll end like on October of that year. So they were doing their best to, to figure this out. And even the evening news had, a, uh, had this verse on there on CBS Evening News. It was almost, they were saying it's so obvious that if you would just read the Bible you think you're going by to predict the end of the world, that very Bible tells you nobody can predict the end of the world. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus said, but of that day, speaking of the end of the world, the second coming, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And so as we saw there in Matthew 24, and I wish I had taped last Sunday night's lesson so I could listen to it again. But in studying through Matthew 24, that swinging pendulum of when Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the signs that would accompany that. And you ought to pray that you're not with child and pray that it's not in winter when your flight is to leave town or run away from the Romans. Uh, there's going to be signs, wars, rumors of wars concerning that day. But then the day of the coming of the Lord, nobody knows there won't be signs. And the sign of the coming of the Lord will be Him in the heavens. Him coming will be the sign itself. And so there's no way to predict the end of the world. But in talking about that, we understand that it is a biblical truth that the world will end. There's coming a last day. It's under God's control. Nobody knows when it is. And the whole point that Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and in other places, and the apostles taught there's a great day coming, it's going to be big and bad. It's going to take care of the sinners and the wicked, but it's going to rescue the righteous. And so you need to be ready for that day since you don't know when it's coming. It is coming. Be ready. So preparedness is the priority. In Paul's teaching about the Lord's Supper, which was to be observed by their example and by the commandment on the first day of the week, and every week has a first day, not just Easter and Christmas Sundays, but um, the idea of the first day of the week, they were to remember the Lord's death. And Paul said, when you're doing this, and he's talking about how you partake and not eat and drink damnation to yourself, he said, you show forth his death until he comes. 
And so there's two parts. The Lord's Supper is a commemoration of the death, but also the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and also of the second coming. That's tied in there with it. Because what's the point of Him dying and being buried or even being raised if He's just gone? But instead, according to what He promised Himself, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and I will take you to be there with me. And you'll live with me and the Father forever is the idea. So we're showing forth His death, and tonight is this idea of death. And I like this because you can't do anything about it, and neither can I. It just It's there. And we can try our best to understand it and see what the Bible says about it. That's the main point. And then try to come away from there with what we think about it or what we think the Bible means or teaches by, by what it says about it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, in that long pa- passage where Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. And I think it stays a mystery even after he shows it to us in some ways because he's talking about invisible, intangible things, the supernatural, the spiritual side of things that we can't touch and feel and measure. It's difficult to even describe how we think the Bible teaches what the Spirit does for us and how He dwells in us and and how that happens. We can't even describe, or I can't even describe, how my own spirit dwells in my own body. I believe it does. The Bible says it does. But how do you write that down? What's the first sentence you say, my spirit dwells in my body like this? And what is, how do you write that? What, how do you even describe that? And not only that, and we may unpack this next week in the holding place of the dead, the intermediate state of the dead, Hades or Sheol, rather. Um, and that is, is mankind a trichotomy or a dichotomy? Do we have body and soul and spirit, three things, Or are the soul and spirit the same thing? And I like it both ways. I like to think that the soul and the spirit are the same thing, just two different sides of the same thing, and we have a body that that's in. But the Bible even talks about body, soul, and spirit as though it's three. And I don't have a problem with it either way because I can't even explain it or figure it out. But it seems like, and we'll talk about it more next week, this idea of of the soul. And so this enemy, death is considered to be an enemy of us. Even though in some cases with long-suffering illnesses and and, uh, human suffering, it seems like death is our friend. It's like, just let let me die. There's a relief here, a release Just let me go meet the Father. Let me go to the grave. Let me out of this body. It's a trap. It's a prison. And on the other hand, Paul says that death is an enemy. And from the Garden of Eden, we see that death is an enemy because death came by sin. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so now we have a fear of death, a consideration of death. It gets our attention. We have to deal with it. There's no way around it. It eventually comes to all of us. So it's our enemy, but it's going to be taken care of. It's going to be killed off, if you, if you will. It'll be taken away. It's our last enemy. So in 1 Corinthians 15, in that mystery, we should not all sleep, but we should all be changed. This, uh, in a moment of the twinkling of an eye, this mortal must put on immortality. In all that long discussion of death and resurrection and all, which still remains kind of mysterious, he says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So at the end of the world, when the elements melt with fervent heat, Christ returns, takes the righteous home and all that, Death will be no more. That last enemy will be destroyed. So what is, what is death? Sometimes I'm amazed at myself when I think and I become self-conscious and I think, this is little old me, myself, going to explain something as awesome as death. This is cool. Can I even do that? How do we even figure out what death is? Well, we all know what it is, but what is it? 
In fact, think about this. Is death, when the spirit leaves the body, is that what causes death? The fact that the spirit is gone? Or does death happen and then that releases the spirit? Or is it all the same thing? I mean, how do you even divide that up? In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And there again, in unpacking all this, we see there's some kind of a timetable, but not months and years between the end of the world and the judgment. But it's not just probably a matter of a few seconds. There's no way we can even mark that kind of time. So when it says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, does not mean, I don't think, that it means, based on other scriptures, that when a person dies, he goes right to the judgment seat of Christ right then, but rather that the judgment is a day of judgment that all the nations will be gathered together, the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, like Jesus taught. Uh, so anyway, we'll unpack that some more. But we die, and after that, the only thing left would be the judgment um, for us. So physical death, it appears in the scriptures, physical death is a separation of the body and soul, or the body and the spirit if the spirit and the soul is the same thing. So anyway, there's the physical part and the spiritual part. In James 2 and verse 26, in the teaching there about the importance of working in conjunction with our faith, he says there in, in using an illustration how they both go together, that you have to have faith with your works or it doesn't count because it's dead. Just like the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead, being alone. And so this idea of death is a separation, is the first and foremost thought. Death is a separation. In Isaiah 38, verses 1 through 12, uh, we read there um, in the passage about Nehemiah and about his description of he was facing death. He turned his, or Hezekiah, rather, and he turned his face to the wall and he wept. And God said, I've seen your tears. But as he was pouring out his heart, he was saying, my dwelling place, my tent will be taken from me. And in that language, it sounds like the me he's talking about is his real self, the insides. And the tent or his tabernacle is the body that's on the outside. And it's going to be taken away from him that's on the inside. And he'll be without his body, without his tabernacle or without his tent. And so it's the idea of me in this body instead of I am this body. So there's that, that's that thought. And then in Genesis 35 and verse 18, in the naming of Benjamin, uh, she called his name Benoni as she died, for her soul was departing, but his father named him Benjamin. So there's that phrase there just sort of just sliding right over it. She died, her soul was leaving her body. Because she died. So that's the same thing. The soul or the spirit is leaving the body. And then in Luke 8 and verse 55, I'm going to have to look at that one because I've got it mixed up with Luke 15. Um, oh, the soul was, let me look right quick. I'm sorry, but I've got, uh, I've got yeah, Jairus' daughter. That's the one here. And Jairus' daughter, it says her spirit came to her again as she was resurrected, so as she came back to life. So there's that same terminology of the spirit away from the body or the spirit back in the body. And that's another interesting thing to try to figure out. The Jews had the idea that the spirit or the soul hung around for about three days before it went on to the holding place of the dead. That was their theory or their thinking on it. But I don't know if there's a soul alive or person alive who can prove one way or the other what the soul does after it gets gone. I mean, it goes into Hades, I believe, about, I mean, to the Sheol, the holding place of the dead, the grave. But how long that takes, 
those are human terms. And so I don't know if, the, if it's split second, it's just gone and it's over there in Sheol, or if it's hanging around a while. But that's too weird to think about. Um, the Old Testament descriptions of death or this separation of the soul and spirit from the body, in Joshua 23, is the expression there, is going the way of all the earth. Many of the patriarchs are said to be gathered to their fathers. This is kind of a poetic way of saying they died. Eventually, everybody goes the way of all the earth. It, it comes to all of us. And that's some comfort in some ways to know that you're not alone. I mean, as bad as I hate the thought of dying in, in most ways, like most of us, it's like, well, it's not just new to me and everybody else has done it or going to do it. And uh, I'll be with my folks or I'll, you know, I'll go through what they went through and, and all of that. Second Samuel 14, the phrase is, as water spilt on the ground. And it's almost like when you're thinking of death, you have to connect it with life. And so... Life is like, as long as it is, it's so short. And so when it's gone, it's just like water spilt on the ground, and it's like, there it is, it was here, but there it is, and now it's even gone, and it's dried up and disappeared. It's just like, does it even exist? So when somebody dies, it's like water spilt on the ground. It's like you can't get it back again, and they went that way, it won't come back this way. Or like a flower cut down, or like a shadow that continues not, Job describes it. Uh, and you think about the flower of the grass. It's here today, and tomorrow it's withered up and, or cut down and thrown into the furnace. And so a person's life is like a vapor, like a shadow that continues not. And um, I believe there's a phrase uh, in Proverbs that his place shall know him no more. Speaking of the wicked, but his place shall know him no more. And I think about the, the literal physical connection that a guy lives in a place. He has a house, a homestead, or a farm, and uh, this land, and these trees, and this barn. And you can drive out to the edge of town and look at some old barn out there and some old home place. And maybe the house is still there. Maybe somebody lives there. But you can think, I bet the guy that built that barn's not around anymore. I mean, that's his place. But his place knows him no more. And I've watched my mother carried out of our house on a gurney and, and didn't live but a few more days in the hospital. And I think about that last trip out of the house, and I've seen some of my neighbors down the street uh, make their last trip out of the house, and I think, you know, there's a time, there's coming a time my place will know me no more, and this place will know me no more, and so that's, that's a beautiful description in a way of the, of the absentee, the, the, the disappearance, or in Isaiah 38, it's like folding a shepherd's tent, or like this body, or as Hezekiah was saying, my, my tabernacle will be taken away from me. Or it's like cutting off by a weaver. Or Solomon described it as cutting or breaking the silver cord. So something about the soul and the body or the spirit and the body being separated. It's like a vanishing vapor, a shadow that fades, a tent that gets folded up, water spilt on the ground, a weaver's shuttle just cutting off the thread, or breaking the silver cord. And it's just this separation, this, this distance. And New Testament descriptions, when somebody's laying in the bed and they have died... They look like they're asleep, generally speaking. Now, when they're torn up on a battlefield and splayed out, they don't look like they're asleep. Or if they're blown up or burned up or something else, some trauma to the body, that picture doesn't give us this picture. But when someone's laying down and seemingly at rest, they appear to be asleep. And that terminology is used as a euphemism about death. And then James 4, as I mentioned, a vanishing vapor. Or in Philippians 1, Paul says, if I die, I'm getting something out of this. I'm gaining something. Because he's looking at the spiritual side of it, that if I die, I've dropped this dying flesh. I'm through with the human suffering and all the problems of this world, and I'm gaining something. I'm gaining heaven. I'm gaining my reward. 
In Revelation 6 and verse 8, death is personified as the rider, I believe, on a pale horse. And uh, there's been movie themes and books written about this sort of thing, this word picture of, of uh, death coming to get you. And then Revelation 14 and verse 13, that they may rest from their labors. These departed saints have earned their reward. They get their crown of life and they rest from their labors. And there's another kind of death, though, that the Bible talks about, and that's spiritual death. And it's the same thing, again, as, as in the concept of separation. That when we are in sin, we are separated from God. And so in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, in that whole section of the letter to Ephesus, Paul says, before you obeyed the gospel and before you became Christians, before you became servants of righteousness and all that, you were without God and without hope in the world. You were lost. You were separated from God. You were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. You're separate. He's over there. You're over here. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 6, this widow or this woman who's living in wantonness and pleasure all of her life, she's dead while she lives. That's spiritual death. That's separation from God. In that wantonness, in that uh, sensuality and serving of the flesh, then you're separate from God. You're at enmity with God, separated like death. And in Luke 15, one of the sad pictures to me in the, in the New Testament, here's a father who doesn't know where his son is, this prodigal son who runs away. Day after day, the father wonders, is he okay? Maybe he's coming home today. Yeah, probably somebody beat him to death. Fell among robbers or something. Or maybe he got sick and died. Maybe he drowned. Maybe ah, he'll be home today. He didn't know where he was, so every day he's probably thinking, I'll never see him again. He's probably he's dead. Ah, he'll be home today. Maybe tomorrow. So he's thinking this, and he must be watching every day, hoping someday I'll see him coming down the road. And sure enough, one day while the boy was afar off, he saw him coming because the boy had decided, there's bread in my father's house in despair. Why am I down here in this pig pen, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. Just help take me back and all that. And the father runs out, falls on his neck, kisses him. You know the story. But then the father explaining why he's going to do this fatted calf and put the robe on him, he says, my son was dead. I couldn't see him. I couldn't touch him. I didn't know anything about him. Didn't know if I'd ever see him again. We were separate. What other word would you use in all of that other than to say, he's dead. He's just not part of me anymore. He's dead. But now he's alive. My son was dead. Now he's alive. And so there's that reconciliation, that coming back, as opposed to the being separate and away from. And so like the boy was away from his father through his sins and his wrong choices, so are we when we are in sin, separate from God, just like we're dead to God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And then when we're dead to sin, we're separated from that sin and rejoined back to God or restored to God. So in Ephesians 2, in that long section, verses 1 through 10, there's this description of coming back to God, of being reconciled to God and being saved and no longer being alienated from God. We're now in Christ. And in Romans 6 and verse 7, along in that passage, he talks about how we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, being then made free from sin, we become the servants of righteousness. And you have been, he that is dead is free from sin. So there's that death, separation, freedom. And so it works both ways. When we're in sin, separated from God. When we're out of sin, we're reconciled to God and brought back together. And then there's this second death, which is really the bad news of the Scriptures. 
Here people have died and they've been gone to the to Sheol, to the holding place of the dead. They're raised. They're brought into judgment. But then because they're not washed in the blood and they're still accountable for their sins and they've been living in wickedness and rebellious and they, they do not know God and they are liars and sorcerers and all these things wrong with them, they will face the judgment of God and they will be sent into hell, which the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. We'll see that in another lesson which is the second death. And another phrase uses those who are, this idea of those who are saved and those who are righteous will not be hurt by the second death. And in Revelation 20, verse 6, verse 14, and chapter 21 and verse 8 all speak about this idea of the second death. That's the final one, the final resting place, or not resting place, but suffering place of the unrighteous, uh, the wicked dead. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer describes how Jesus came and partook of the human, human flesh, the human form and flesh and blood so that He could save us. And uh, He saved those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And so the power of the satanic one, the power of evil, the power of death has a great holding power through fear to make us obey and to make us do the wrong thing sometimes. But in John chapter 11 and verse 25, in one of Jesus' discourses when He made so many of the great promises, He said, He who believes in Me shall live even if He dies. So that's an interesting play on words, but He's talking there about the spiritual eternity. That the Spirit that lives on, the Spirit made in the image of God, the Spirit washed in the blood and saved, is rescued. He, it will live. This man who is a believer and an obedient servant, a disciple, he will... He will live even after he's dead because it's the Spirit that lives on. And then, I think this is the point of all these lessons, really, this idea of preparedness. But as Peter points out, this destruction, this, the elements will melt with fervent heat and, and all these things are going to happen at the end of the world. He said, since these things are so to be destroyed, since this is going to happen, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy living and and in your attitude, your example, and all this, the footsteps that follow Jesus. Because it does make a difference. And if you really think about it, none of what we believe and teach and practice in the church or in any religion amounts to a hill of beans. It just doesn't matter if these things don't matter. If these are not true, if there's not an end coming, and if there's no accountability and no judgment, then it's just every man for himself and the biggest and the baddest with the biggest guns and the meanest attitude is going to control everybody else until... It just doesn't matter. But if these things are true, and that's where Peter is going with this, since these things are going to be destroyed like this, then you need to think about what manner of person you'll be in your life, in your conduct, in your holy living, because God's going to judge you for that. And so that's where we're going with all of this, this important consideration. As one person said one time, what's this world coming to anyway? What's this world coming to? An end. And that's why it makes such a difference is to be prepared to meet Jesus. And in the word picture in the, in the book of Revelation, there's this idea of those who are unrighteous and that know not God. When they see Jesus coming in the clouds, they're not going to be seeing a friend. We see a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. And we, we're going to be welcomed into His arms and into the, to the presence of the Father. But to the others, the word picture there in Revelation is they're going to be crying out for the mountains to fall on them. Have you ever wanted to be shielded from heat or shielded from the cold and you want something 
really thick, really that really covers you. I remember one time at a ball game, I was it was so hot it was like 105 in the shade, and, and we were out at the what's now the CAC campus over here uh, on JFK, and it was a there was a ball field there, and a little grandson was playing t-ball or something, and it was so hot. I looked up and I saw a wire uh, on a telephone wire or something. I thought if I could just stand under that wire and get a little bit of shade to go right across there, it would somehow feel good. And I thought about, of course, the rich man in torment needing just the tip of his tongue cooled with water. He couldn't have it. But here these people are seeing this one that's described as taking vengeance on the unrighteous and the ungodly with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And they're going to say, we want some shield. We want a mountain between us and this righteous God that's coming in flaming fire. And so it matters how we live our lives. And it may be that in your life there's something amiss right now that you know is wrong and you need to make it right with God or with the church. And you can bring that before the congregation tonight and ask for prayers or for forgiveness or restoration if you need that. Or if there's anyone here tonight who wants to put on the Lord in baptism, that's available. The whole idea here is to be prepared because these things will be dissolved and there is a great day coming. And so we're going to sing a song now of encouragement about trusting God and obeying Him, which is the theme of the entire Scriptures, because these things are true. So if you need to come tonight, would you come as we stand, as we sing this song?